this morning we're going to read uh, John chapter 1. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do uh, this morning, we're sort of in between sermon series, and I wanted us to talk, uh, you know, we talk a lot about um, being followers of Jesus. We spend a lot of time discussing what Jesus wants us to do. We have certain uh, needs uh, that we feel need to be met, and we need help with those needs. Uh, they could be parenting issues, marital problems, anxiety, stress, all those different things. And we tend to talk a lot about the application of the gospel, which we will talk about some this morning. But one of the things I wanted to do was just talk about the beauty of who Jesus is. If we're calling you to follow Jesus, then who is he? What, what are the, some of the characteristics, what are some of the attributes of the person, the God, of Jesus. And um, the first thing that came to mind uh, was that Jesus is full of grace. And so that's one of the things I want us to, to hit on today. And I thought John chapter 1 was a, an appropriate uh, <clears throat> passage to start with. So let's, um, let's go ahead and read that together. You can open your Bibles um, or look on the screen. I'm going to read 18 verses, so listen closely to these verses. Allow God's Word to soak in to your mind and to your heart as we read these together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, now, just to make sure... And very clear, you understand that the word they're talking about is Jesus. So you could insert the name of Jesus for the, for the word, word. All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was, a, was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a powerful passage explaining to us who Jesus really is. That Jesus is God. He is your Son. But yet, He became a person in the flesh to reveal to us who you are. And He was full of grace and truth. Lord, help us to understand what that means this morning. To understand what it means that Jesus is full of grace. How that impacts our lives and our perspective on life. And what is truly at the center of everything. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So, I was reading chapter 1 of John. And it says that he is full of grace and truth. And that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So I thought it would be appropriate to look at the definition of grace as it pertains to Jesus in this passage. Okay? So I thought, what are the common definitions of grace that we often use? Okay? And there's, in my in my mind, because, you know, I've been teaching this for 20 years, and I, I kind of go back to these two particular definitions. The one, the first one is that God's grace is unmerited favor towards those who don't deserve it, okay? It's pretty common. And then the second is an anacronym, okay, where there's a, a letter that, that points to each, you know, phrase. So, grace... G-R-A-C-E, is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so I started studying about this word, and I get out my Greek New Testament, and I get out my lexicons, which is a fancy word for a definition, dictionary. And I'm looking at online resources. I even got Corey Mansfield uh, doing some research for me with his uh, software that he has. And what I found was a much fuller definition of grace and its use. It's not that the definitions that we just talked about are particularly wrong, but I think they are particularly deficient. And here's why. Because I think that while we use the word grace all the time, I wanted to find uh, more of a meaning to it other than just the word grace. Like, what are some synonyms or some phrases that will actually help me define this word? Okay? So, here's, here's what I found out, okay? In my study. Grace is favor. It's blessing. It is joy. It is pleasure. It is delight. It is goodwill. Kindness, attractiveness, and beauty. 
So grace is used as a noun to describe the essence of who Jesus is in John 1. Or an adjective to describe God and Jesus. Or even as a verb, grace would be to perform an action prompted by favor, kindness, and goodwill towards someone else. Okay? Now, we, we say that grace is unmerited favor because the New Testament talks about how God's grace, uh, about how God gives us grace unconditionally, not because that we deserved it. So our sin keeps us from deserving grace, and yet God still gives us grace because of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. But do you see the difference I'm trying to make here? There is a, there is a pure definition of grace. So when the Bible says Jesus is full of grace and truth, it can't just be going back to that definition that, it, that grace is God's unmerited favor towards those who don't deserve it, because that's more of the application definition of grace. Grace in itself so it is this favor and blessing and joy and pleasure and delight and goodwill. That is what grace is. And so that brings us to understand this essence of who Jesus is. And that's who I want you to fall in love with. I want you to fall in love with the, the essence of Jesus. God poured it out onto his son. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you've been around your Bibles at all, you, you, you're familiar with this verse. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So here grace is a gift of God bestowed upon us, not a result of works that no one may boast. So we didn't, we didn't earn it. We didn't earn this grace. It was unmerited favor, but it, it, is, it is something in Jesus that he bestows upon us. But if we only see grace as it is applied to us, then we're missing the truth that grace is first and foremost the essence of God and who Jesus is. You see, I think we tend to see a lot of things in the Bible this way, and I call it a self-centered gospel. Okay? So, I'm going to challenge you a little bit this morning. We see what's in the Bible only as it relates to us and the benefit that we receive. Do you, get, do you understand that? I, I think that's how most of us, in, in a lot of ways, approach the Bible. We approach God. I know I fall into the trap that I approach it only as it relates to me and the benefit that I receive. So, so, so read your Bibles in the morning. Get up and read. What is, what is it going to tell me to do today? What, what, is it, what, am I gonna get, what am I getting out of the Bible? You know, you're, you might ask yourself, what am I getting out of this sermon? I'm going to challenge you. That's part of that thinking is self-centered. So my challenge to you this morning is to stop seeing and believing in this self-centered gospel. The scriptures portray a God-centered gospel, 
And while we are the recipients of this gospel, this good news, we are not the end goal of the gospel. Your life is not about you. Now that could be a really hard pill to swallow. Your life is not about you. Let's just go back to our own church's catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's our statement of, of theology, if you will. And a catechism is simply a teaching tool of uh, a number of questions and answers that we memorize. We have our children memorize it, and we should be memorizing it as well. Um, it was originally uh, intended to train pastors, actually, in their, in their theological education. But the very first question of the Westminster Confession is this, of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Okay, so like, let's get right at the heart of things. What is my purpose? What is the chief end of man? And the answer, so question and answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify myself and to enjoy me forever. Right? Oh, Becky's shaking her head. Oh, Fletch, you've missed it. But that's, that, I'm telling you, that's the challenge that we have because we think that is the answer. Or, or, or we may know the answer. The true answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But practically speaking, we have our own definition. Okay? We might say the right words, but practically we tend to live a different way. We have to understand that the universe revolves around God and not around man. Remember, um, before the 1500s, people believed that the sun and the moon and the planets and everything, the stars, that they revolved around the earth. There was, there was this... There was this belief that everything in the universe sort of revolved around the earth at one point. But then um, Copernicus and later Galileo figured out that actually it was the sun that was stationary uh, and the earth and the planets revolved around the sun. And so this changed everything that they thought about astronomy. Like it changed, you know, science and everything that they understood and how things operated and worked. And I think we need to have a similar realization that our lives don't revolve and orbit around us for our pleasure, but rather our lives revolve around God and orbit around Him for His pleasure and for His glory. Now, it doesn't mean that we as human beings, that we as people are not significant or valued. I mean, after all, we were created in the image of God, right? So we are valuable to Him. But remember, we are created in His image. We forget that already. We were created in God's image. We weren't created in our own image. Everything revolves around God. When we become the end of all things, when our own happiness, our own emotional stability becomes the goal of life, then we will never, ever reach that goal. 
that is because we were not created that way. And when you're not created a certain way, then you're never going to reach your goal. Simply not how God has ordered the universe. Let's go back to the first words of the Bible. Do you remember what the first four words of the Bible are? In the beginning, God. Okay? In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, man. Not in the beginning, me. In the beginning, God. So if you ever start to get confused about what life is all about and what revolves around it, then go back to Genesis 1, 1, and remind yourself of these first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now, if you remember, our original text for today is almost identical to Genesis chapter 1. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. That's obviously not a coincidence. The Apostle John is writing his gospel, his, his biographical narrative of the story about Jesus, about Jesus Christ. And he starts with the same words that Moses used in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word. He's making his point clear that at the beginning of the gospel, that this Jesus, whom he is going to tell us all about in the next 20-some chapters, that he is from the beginning, that he is God. Because he goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? So we see, again, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, the Bible is trying to help us understand, in the beginning, God is the central focus of the universe. God wants to make clear in his scriptures that the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are primary. Man was created by God and for God. John 1.3 says this. I think we've got that, a slide for that one. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all things were made through Jesus. Right? They were made through and from Jesus. And then Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says this. Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So we were created through Jesus, and we were created for Jesus. God did not create us for ourselves. God created us for himself and for his glory. Let that sink in for a minute. God did not create us for ourselves. God 
created us for himself and for his own glory. For the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He is the central, stationary person, figure, God in the universe. And we all revolve around him. The frustration that we feel in this life, though, goes back to this misunderstanding of why we were created and who we were created for. We get, we get frustrated in life because we, we don't really understand that we were created by Him and for Him. We live in a world with enough misinformation, so let's make sure we get this right. You were created by God and for God and for His glory. Make sure that you get that. Our community group uh, started the study on Psalm 23 by Matt Chandler this week. Uh, it's on Right Now Media. Many of your community groups are going to do that uh, this fall. And uh, he goes over just the first verse. And the first phrase in Psalm 23 uh, starts out, The Lord is my shepherd. And so one of the discussion questions that we had to talk about um, asks, What other shepherds are you following? And so, you know, being uh, hopefully a good uh, community group member myself, uh, I was doing the little study before we got there. And I thought, hmm. What other shepherds do I follow? First one that came to mind? Myself. I follow myself. I, follow, I, I think I'm the shepherd. I think I'm the good shepherd. I think I know where, where the best food is, where the best pasture is. So sad. You know. Uh, I lead myself to the places, feelings, emotions, and Actions that make me feel good about me. That's what I do. But Jesus promises to be my shepherd. That's what the psalm calls us back to. That's what this, all the scriptures are calling us back to. And he will lead me to where he wants me to go for his glory. And I need to believe this. So here's a question you might be asking, though. And the question is this. So... You might say to yourself, so am I just supposed to live my life in blind obedience as a slave to God, doing his bidding without any joy and happiness in my life? Is that what the Christian life is about? Because a lot of people kind of think that way, right? Well, I just, okay, well then, I just have to do what God tells me to do, and, and it's going to be painful, and, and there's not going to be any joy in it, you know, because God is like this cosmic killjoy. Is there any, you know, what... How does this work? Do we live without any joy or happiness? The answer is simply no. Because God has created you, and His purpose for you is to live in relationship with Himself. And God loves His creation and desires that His creation live in this full and abundant relationship with himself. So we, we, we don't find happiness when we search for it within ourselves. We find happiness and joy when we search for it in this relationship that we have with God. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Hopefully, because we've been preaching on the last two weeks, right? Um, 
why was the father so happy and why did he celebrate his son when his son came home? I think because his son had come home to him. Right? He came home back to him. He came home back to the father and the father was thrilled that their their relationship had been restored and reconciled and he he was so excited. He throws this huge party. And of course the older son, he gets he gets all ticked off and he's like, "Why? He squandered all your wealth and He's done all these bad things. Why are you doing this? And then, again, the father's response to the older brother, because remember, the older brother says to his father, this son of yours, okay, has squandered all of the wealth. And the father answers, this brother of yours was lost and now is found. Jesus, in this parable, is helping us see there is a relational beauty here. There's relational significance with the the son and the father being reconciled, with the son and the brother being reconciled in relationship. You see, sin separates, but the gospel reconciles. Here's another way of thinking about this whole idea of who's at the center of the universe, okay? Why are we motivated to missions? Why are we motivated to missions? Why do we want people to be saved? Okay, we said Eric come up and and share a little bit about this. The normal answer that we would say is that so people won't go to hell. We don't want people to go to hell. We don't want people to experience that. But the biblical answer is so that they can worship God in spirit and in truth. You see, like us not going to hell is simply a benefit of our of our, of being saved and reconciled to God. John Piper uh, in the very first second sentence of his book on missions entitled Let the Nations Be Glad. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He says this, missions exist because worship doesn't. When I first read that, it just kind of blew my mind. I never thought of it that way. Missions exist not so that people don't go to hell, which is sort of our normal way of thinking about it, but missions exist because worship doesn't. The salvation of our souls is not for the salvation of our souls. Follow me for a moment. Okay, you've got to give me a break here. Because some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? The salvation of our souls is for our souls to be brought back into relationship with God. Okay? Jesus didn't die to save you from hell. Jesus died so you could be made holy, so that in turn you could worship him. If you're still struggling, let me go over a couple of passages of Scripture. 1 Peter 3.18. We'll get those up there on the screen. 1 Peter 3.18. There we go. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's us, 
that he might bring us to God. It doesn't say that we might not go to hell, but that he might bring us to God so that we can be reconciled into this relationship with him and live in that relationship and worship him as the center of all things. Ephesians 1, 4 and 6. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, we have to be, in order for us to worship God correctly, we have to be made holy and blameless. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, not for us, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not our own will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So we have received this blessing of grace. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt that we get all the blessings of this grace. But it's not just for us. It's so that we can in turn worship God and Jesus as King. Let's, let's get another one, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Uh, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God did not create you for your own glory. He created you for his own glory. Now, Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will re not remember your sins. Th think about this for a second. We think Jesus died for my sins to take away my, my sins so that I no longer have to feel guilty about my sins. No. That's not what it says. Do you, will you experience... Will you experience... The guilt going away? Yes. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is that Jesus and God blots out your transgressions for his own sake. For his own sake. We get the benefit of this. Yes. But we are not the end goal. I've got three more. Psalm 25:11 For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Not for my own sake, for your own sake, Lord. When we when we exchange this and say for my sake, Lord, pardon my guilt, then we become the center of all things and that's not how the Bible wants us to understand our relationship with God and our life. Titus 2:11 to 14 for the grace, this is a great, this is a great passage. You guys should go back and, and look at this uh, this week. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Awesome. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Telling us all about what we're supposed to do. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of, the great, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for 
us, to redeem us from all, un- all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We're not saved to do good works. We're saved to, to be purified. We're purified for God. We'll put that one back up real quick. I'm sorry. For his own possession, the, the, the outflow, the fruit of that is our good works. All right, here's the last one. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? We're saved, we're justified, we're forgiven. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You picking up on this? None of those verses. The Bible doesn't talk about us being saved for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 says, You were not saved for yourself, but you were saved for Christ. So that we would have peace with God. So that this relationship that was broken between us and God can be reconciled. So that we can live in this beautiful relationship receiving this grace. So again, here's the question you're going to ask. Oh man, I'm over time. I'm so sorry. But I'm going to finish. So here's, here's the question. So you're going to say, if life is not about me, then how is the gospel good news for me? Right? That's the big question. You're saying the gospel is, is good news. Euangelion, the Greek word means good news. It's for me, right? How is it that it is good news for me if what all you said so far is true? And I would just say that as your pastor and friend, I'm, I'm going to share it this way. As your pastor and as your friend, I want to relieve all of your pain and suffering. You're feeling lonely, isolated, stressed, anxious, depressed. You're suffering from cancer, brain tumors, back pain, financial hardship, broken relationships, besetting sin, anger, and frustration. I know you are. You've told me. I've seen it on the prayer chain. All this stuff, right? And so I so desperately want to relieve you of that suffering for your sake. I want it to stop. I don't want you to feel pain anymore. But unfortunately, I don't have the power to change those things. However, I can pray for God to relieve your suffering, which we should do. But it will have to be for His glory. It will have to be for His glory. The good news of the gospel for you and for me is that God Himself suffered so that your suffering would not be in vain. Jesus' suffering was not in vain. It had meaning and purpose. And yes, it saved you from hell, but it was for the glory of God. Jesus was treated unjustly. Jesus was the recipient of racism. He had friends betray him. He experienced death of loved ones. Jesus was beaten, spit upon, tortured, and executed. But why? So that a sinful people would be saved, not for themselves, but for God the Father. 
Jesus suffered so that when you suffer in this world, and obviously we are suffering, it is not in vain. It is for the glory of God. Some of you will experience some relief in your suffering in this world. When physical, mental, or emotional ailments are healed or when relationships are restored and reconciled. But even if you don't experience that relief, Jesus still makes it possible to, for you to find joy in the journey. Jesus makes it possible for you to find peace in your pain. He makes it possible for you to experience freedom from your frustration. And this is this is only a foretaste of the complete and absolute alleviation of our pain and suffering that we will experience when we are made whole again in heaven and worship God forever. Remember the challenge at the beginning of our time was my challenge to you was to stop seeing and believing in a self-centered gospel. And so John 1 tells us that Jesus, who is the gospel, was full of grace. He was full of favor, blessing, joy, pleasure, delight, goodwill, kindness, attractiveness, beauty. And he has poured this out upon us, grace upon grace. So, dear friends, this morning, receive that grace from Jesus with thankfulness. Receive it knowing that even in the toughest times, God's favor is upon you and that he will get the glory through it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we do thank you that you saved us from ourselves, from our own sin and bitterness from our own uh, rebelliousness, but not just for our own selves. That would be so small. You saved us for things so much greater, which is your glory. Help us to see that this morning, that our suffering is not in vain, that our joy and our happiness are meant to be in you alone. And even in this journey of life that's difficult and hard, we can find joy in it, knowing that you are being glorified through it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.